Hello all, Tom Rain here from Tom's Big Spiders, about to do the second part of my Facebook Q&A. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I put out basically a call out for anybody that had questions that I could answer on my podcast, because again, I, I like coming up with topics myself. However, there are a lot of people listening that have questions that if I answer them on the podcast might benefit other people. So I thought it'd be a cool idea and people really responded. We ended up with, I think, 28 questions, 29 questions, which is great. Now, I attempted to answer as many as I could last week. Obviously, it's carrying over to this week, which is why last week was labeled part one, because that insinuates part two is on the way, and now we're doing it. And I don't know if there'll be a part three. We'll see how it goes. If there needs to be a part three, there'll be a part three. I do know a couple of these topics will probably be their own podcast, or at least a, a good chunk of a podcast. So if I don't cover it now, no, I will answer all of these questions at some point. So just bear with me, be patient, and we'll get to them all. Uh, to start out, some news on the Fatal Fangs thing. I want to just thank everybody that voted for me in that tournament. Um, just this is a kind of the, the fun has been ruined with this thing. Basically, just to, to explain, apparently somebody has been going on the website to vote and using uh, VINs. I guess it is VINs. I kind of had this explained to me the other day to vote repeatedly. So people were getting votes like sometimes 100 in a couple minutes, which is absolutely impossible. Um, I had a great battle going with Garis from Predator of Prey online. And unfortunately, that was ours was one of the ones impacted. So I guess there were a couple of the battles going on that people were going on and fudging the numbers. So we ended up with like a thousand more than other people in it. The whole thing was disgusting and ridiculous. It's sad because I honestly don't get to do a lot of fun stuff with the Thomas Big Spurs. Not saying I enjoy myself, but it, like the thing that Mark and I did there, the off the tongs challenge. I love that because I kind of get to have a little fun, be a little more playful. It's not the educational stuff. So I thought this would be really cool. My whole, I I was not immediately going to jump into it only because I had so much going on when the tournament started. It was me going back to school and, you know, I didn't have the time, but decided to do it and thought, well, if all goes well, perhaps I'll meet Mark. I thought that would be really cool because we had done the feeding challenge, or, you know, last year and the year before. Really cool for he and I to meet up. And that was the only reason I was really into it. It was just a fun thing. And I think for other YouTubers, it was a good chance to kind of get some exposure and have people see their channels. Unfortunately, it sounds like somebody probably, the general consensus is it's not somebody that's in the tournament and somebody that's trying to sabotage the tournament is going on just randomly voting for people to try to cause upsets and wreak havoc. So unfortunately, Gar has left the competition. He will no longer be uh, participating. I was asked to continue on, but when the votings close, whether they're wonky or not, Gar was actually winning it. And so as far as I'm concerned, the people that spent all their time voting for him and voting for him, nobody knows who would have won this competition. He had a great clip. He fed a piece of Letharia species. Tong fed it. Great job, Gar. And unfortunately, it's the whole thing's been kind of tainted. So I was asked to continue. Uh, Billy and I really, at first it was like, oh, that's cool. We get to continue. But then it's like, what is the point? Like, the unfortunately... It's supposed to be a fun thing. Somebody screwed it up by screwing around with the voting. Poor Gar probably could have gone ahead. I don't know. He absolutely could have won that thing. I don't know, and I don't feel good going ahead with it. So I will most likely be – I've already emailed the guy who runs it, uh, poor Sam Carver, who uh, does Bug Realms, who has worked his butt off. He and his team have done so much work to put this competition together, and it's a shame because whoever did this was probably trying to sabotage it, and now they're somewhat succeeding. I hope he manages to go on with it. 
And uh, it's just the whole thing just turned icky. So thank you for all who took the time to vote for me that thought my clip was better. The idea of the whole thing was supposed to be you vote for the better clip. And I was hoping my people were doing that. And it seemed like they were. I I talked to some people that are on my channel that were like, hey, Tom, (laughs) love you, love your stuff. But the other person's clip was better. Um, So that's the way it's supposed to work. Unfortunately, it looks like it will not be facing Mark now. Maybe I can talk to Mark and we can do something in the future. We had a heck of an idea lined up for our one against Mark that maybe I'll break out later that would not be dangerous to the tarantulas or anybody involved, but might involve more than one of us feeding. We'll see if that ever comes into play. But I want to thank everybody and just explain that it just doesn't make sense to go ahead right now. I don't need negativity going on in my life with the Thomas Big Spire stuff. This is fun, and apparently people are already complaining that... Basically, the the thing's rigged, and I don't blame it. It looks like it's rigged, so I don't want any part of that. So, unfortunately, I'll be stepping back. Hopefully, they manage to, you know, get the situation with the voting under control, so somebody isn't ruining the whole thing, and we'll have to take it from there. But again, thanks everybody that voted, and uh, that'll probably be the last competition or thing like that I do in quite some time, only because the whole thing was kind of soured. I just don't understand why people can't just play nice. All right, so moving on to the fun stuff, our first question we're taking this morning is from Katie Steinmetz. Katie, I hope I said your name right. I have this thing about mispronouncing names, and I, I'll feel terrible if I get it wrong, but feel free to connect me, uh, correct me with the phonetic pronunciation if I did mispronounce it. Uh, Katie asks, one thing I've been wondering about is if loud noises or music would disturb or stress my tarantulas. This is a great question. Or if those kind of vibrations wouldn't really reach them in the enclosures. I keep them in my home office. I'm in there all day playing music and podcasts. I wonder whose podcasts are playing. As someone who listens to music that is generally played at high volume, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I do. And this is something I've wrestled with for quite some time. Um, just to give you a little background, when we first got our first tarantula, the queen, the one I have now, and I had a AC Monty, uh, they end up being a mature male. And Billy and I's first apartment, we were, well, we were 21 years old. We were moving out on our own for the first time. We were in a tiny little apartment that basically consisted of about a third of a house, like the bottom floor of a house. It was a big house. We just had like a third of a tiny little box thing. And there was lots of music, lots of people, lots of traffic going in and out. And they seemed to do fine. Now, fast forward, I'm obviously a huge metalhead. We're constantly blasting music here. I just took video yesterday to send my wife. My daughter said was sleeping on the couch with Worm, one of our dogs. And sound asleep while Slayer was blasting in the background. I'm like, that's when you know you're a metal home, when the kids are just napping through Slayer. Um, so there's always music playing here. It's usually mine. And I'm anytime I'm working on the spiders, I have a playlist. I have a playlist that I play. I have uh, Amazon Echo that I play. I have a Bluetooth speaker that I bring when I'm doing feeding. And I put it right on the table usually, away from the spiders. And I feed the spiders. I've never seen any issues with it. I have been very – when I first started doing the feeding and I bought the speaker, I used to put it on a place behind me so it wasn't directly in front of them. Because obviously it's not so much about the hearing. It's the vibrations. And when you have something that has a lot of bass, it's going to have vibrations in it. Do they feel the vibrations? Yes. I'm, I'm pretty sure they feel the vibrations. But they don't seem to be stressed or react to them in my opinion. When I'm working in the tarantula room, it's a smaller room. I'll bring my speaker in. I'll crank the music up. I don't get much of a reaction on anybody. As a matter of fact, I've caught some of my arboreals that are usually, you know, like Masalopius species tend to be a little more reclusive and hide. And I've seen them sit right out in the open with no problems with the music blasting. My M. Balfouri communal, I, the other day I was in there doing some work and there were four of them out and I did get some video of it this time. And I had music blasting again pretty decent base going nobody seemed to register it i when i feed them and i bring up the feeding because normally you would think if they were stressed they're not going to eat they're going to be you know 
skittish and, and, and act like in a way that shows that they're not settled. And what I'll do is I, I when I feed everything, I bring them out to my dinner table. I clean my dinner table off and I put my Bluetooth speaker on the dinner table, usually the opposite end. I don't put it right next to the enclosures, but it is on the table. So the vibrations are going through the table and I crank my metal music and I start feeding the tarantulas and I've never had any problems with any of them eating. They go, they jump on the prey. They don't seem to care. In fact, a little trick, if you want to do some maintenance on a, a spider, that's kind of a pain in the butt, get them in the feeding mode, toss them a couple of roaches, get their mouths nice and full and then do some work. Sometimes they're too pre- preoccupied fighting with the roaches to worry about you. It's actually a trick I used to use to, uh, clean my snakes. I had a couple snakes that were a little nippy back in the day. Used to give them a rat and as they're wrapping the rat and killing the rat or doing whatever they need to do with that, I'd go in and clean out their enclosure. It was perfect because they were too busy eating to worry about me. So a little tip there. But uh, Katie, I have not seen any issues. Now, does that mean you want to blast something with heavy bass right directly next to it? No, obviously not. But listening to music, even listening to loud music, as long as it's not like a real heavy hitting subwoofer, I'm guessing if you got the vibrations going where things on the table or things on your work desk are like bouncing around and vibrating, that's probably going to cause some issues. But it seems like normal music, even normal music played very loudly, doesn't cause any issues as far as I've been able to see. Now, I've heard... Grumpy people. I, I was uh, reading once where somebody was talking about they play a lot of loud music when they feed their tarantulas. Somebody came on, you're bothering your tarantulas. They're gonna. I, I just haven't seen any evidence of it. And I do again. I crank my music up. It's sometimes right on the speakers, right on the table with me, and I haven't seen any issues. So, Katie, you should be totally okay. Um, I'm. If you're listening to the podcast, if this is one of the podcasts, um, I, I've. Find, found that spiders find my voice to be very soothing. So that might, I'm totally making that up. I'm sorry, but mine seem to like it anyway. I joke because I talk to them while I work with them. Sometimes Billy always makes fun of me because they don't really hear my voice, but I think maybe they hear the vibration of it and it has a nice tonality with it. And maybe that's why I have so much success with them. It's just that I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. Apparently I've had too much coffee this morning. So anyway, Katie, I would say within reason, no. I mean, if you can, I try to don't try to. If you have a speaker or something, try to keep it on the opposite end of the desk. Like, don't put it right next to them. And I think most people are pretty aware of that. Would do something like that. But as far as it bothering them, I've seen absolutely no evidence of it. Next question comes from Zach Hess. I think I said your name right, Zach. I believe I've said it before, and I thought you said I said it right. So we're going with it. Formicibus pamphibedius and Zenithus. Which is your favorite genus out of these? Xenithus and Pamphibedius are expensive but highly regarded. Formictopus are quite a bit cheaper, and their praises have been sung by you and quite a few others on arachnoboards recently. Definitely looking to add one or maybe two of these genuses to my collection soon. All right, so obviously everybody out here is probably shaking their head knowing where this one's going that's followed me because I'm obvious, I have a, a huge bias toward Formictopus. I love Formictopus. I keep, I believe, seven seven different species colorations of them or I love them I, I I think they're gorgeous when they grow up they're fairly fast growing as far as which ones are better it's I don't think there's really an answer to that unfortunately it, it's all a matter of opinion I, I I tend to get into it more with the pamphobedius folks when I talk about formictopus and there'll be pampho people like well why aren't you promoting pamphos I love pamphos pamphos are great and singing you know their praises which is totally fine I think it just comes down to personal preference and how big your wallet is. Because like you said, there's a money aspect to it. Now, it's kind of, I, I kind of, for an analogy, and I don't know if this is a great one, but it's kind of like you're out shopping for an SUV. You know kind of what you want, and you've got it broken down to you can buy a Kia, you can buy a Subaru, or you can buy a Lexus. Now, if you buy the Lexus, you're getting all the bells. It's a pretty car, but it, it, it's not going to be so much above the Subaru as far as what it offers 
in amenities that to really account for it, you're more buying it because it's a beautiful thing that you can go, look at this, I am driving a Lexus. It's a status car. It's one you can drive to work, park, and you know, kind of proudly walk away from and go, yeah, I, I own that. I drive that. And, and that would probably be your your Zenith, this species. Again, they're all comparable. They're all, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but that price tag, I don't know if it's warranted. It's more because they're so tough to get. But I think people get them and it's like, whoa, guess what I got? I got a Zenith, this species. And everybody's like, whoa, you got a Zenith, this species. And I've seen them. I do want to get one because I can't, again, I, I never like talking about something where I don't have experience with it. So I can't, these guys could be amazing. I don't know. They could dance as far as I know. They could be awesome spiders. I just, I haven't kept one, so I don't know what they offer. I mean, they're Generally, they're the fast-growing tropical species, just like a pampho or a formictopus. They're gorgeous, obviously, and that's one thing that really you know stands out about them. They're gorgeous spider, but the price tag is quite hefty. It's like every time I go to buy one, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll pick one of these up, and then I'm reminded why I haven't picked one up yet. I'm sometimes kind of cheap, and I, there isn't enough there cosmetically to make me make that jump and pay that money yet, although I am, I'm getting ready to. So that would be my take on that. And then you got the Pamphibedius, which is kind of your, you know, they can be very pricey too. They've got beautiful colorations, and, and I don't know if you've seen, you know, we're going to go with that Subaru comparison. Some of the new Subarus have beautiful paint jobs, some really unique colorations there. And they, again, offer all the same amenities as the other three, little more pricey, very dependable, easy to keep. It's just, it comes down to the fact that they are, you know, they do cost a little bit more. Although I will say the pamphlet prices have come down quite a bit since I first started, you know, getting serious into the hobby. Back in the day, you'd see pamphlet prices up there, you know, two, three hundred bucks for some of these things. And the, the slings now, you can find some of the species, the more common species, for I've seen them as low as 50 bucks, which isn't bad for a spider that's going to be, you know, big, hairy, beautiful spider and not very long at all. And I actually have three species of pamphlets. I have. Pamphibedius antinus, supposedly the, which one is a steely blue leg, but there's like a bunch of different spiders out there from different regions that have the antinus name. Then I supposedly have Pamphibedius uh, species aranopoito, which uh, may just be an antinus. Well, who knows? We'll see how that goes. And then I have Pamphibedius species duran, and I love them. They're awesome. They're fast growing. They're relatively hardy compared to other species. I think they had a rep for a while of being a little more difficult to keep because you have to keep them moist. But I found that once they grow up, they're very, very hardy. And I know some folks that keep them on dry substrate with just a water dish. And obviously the males sport some brilliant colors. The females tend to be a little more drab, not all of them, but most of the ones I've seen. So for example, my Pamphibeta species Durans, when they both hit around five inches, they were the most gorgeous shade of like, almost like a fuchsia. It was just amazing. And then the male molted had his ultimate molt and the female molted and basically within the next two molts lost her color. She's a, a brownish color now, still a gorgeous spider, but lost some of that that sparkle, that, you know, pink that uh, I was really coming to love with them. And I think that's something that some people don't realize with the Pamphibedia species is that they see pictures of the males with their purples and their pinks and their gorgeous colors, and they pick ones up and then are kind of surprised and sometimes disappointed to learn that the females don't necessarily pick up those same colors. But again, awesome spiders. I love the large tropicals. So Pamphos are great. Again, you're paying a little bit more for it. And then going back to our analogy, you have the Kia version which is the, it's a lot cheaper, still offers some great amenities, may not be as good as the other ones in some respects, but again, you're not paying 
hundreds of dollars for specimens like you are with Zenithus. And uh, the Formictopus, anybody that's followed my stuff, I, I got my first Formictopus cancerides years ago after being turned off for a while by reports that they are just big, ornery brown spiders. I found that they are anything but. The cancerides go through so many color changes when they start beautiful blue slings. They put on a lot of size with those first uh, year. Usually, you can expect a spider around four or five inches in the first year if kept in decent temperatures and fed well. They eat great. Some of the best feeding responses of any of the species. Again, people who have pamphos and zenithis will probably report the same thing. They tend to be a little less expensive. Like you can get cancerides or a dime a dozen. They're very, very cheap. And then some of the other species you can find. Although I will say recently they've been more difficult to find. I see them popping up every once in a while here and there. They're a little more pricey than they were back when I first started grabbing up all the species of Formictopus I could find. Back then, you could usually find slings for like, you know, some of the the more sought-after species were like 75 bucks or so, but some of the species, you could find some for 50 and I got a couple really good deals. I believe I got, uh, what was it? Formictopus, my Dominican violets, I didn't pay that much for at all, and now those are very difficult to find. So, at first, I would say, at least a couple of years ago, Formictopus was just much more readily available, less expensive, and still you still got to keep a big, large, tropical spider that would potentially have some beautiful colors. And I think, unfortunately, Formictopus species get a bad rep because a lot of people think they're just brown. I have some gorgeous Formictopus and, and males and females that I have in my collection right now that are just stunning. I have a male Formictopus cancerides that is just a lovely shade of purple, just, the, just one of the coolest looking spiders I have. I have the species green femurs that right after a molt are stunning. The gold carapaces, the green femurs, are just incredible. it looks like black until you get it under light and it's got that green iridescence to it. The Dominican Violets, I have what I believe are two females. Hopefully they'll stop munching. I mean, I'm pretty positive they're females, but I haven't gotten a good molt to actually 100% confirm it. But they are just amazing spiders. Probably the, I think, probably the two most beautiful spiders or two of the most beautiful spiders in my collection. Those are the two that when I go to feed, Billy comes running out as well to check them out. Just amazing looking spiders. And I think for a while, unfortunately, that the reputation of them being ornery and not particularly good looking... People shied away from them, didn't pick them up. I've done a lot over the years to try to change people's attitudes toward this genus because I think a lot of people missed out. And unfortunately, a lot of people missed out, you know, four or five years ago when there were all a bunch of different species being imported. At that point, I got one that was called the Species Blue. Still have never seen anything like this one. I've had people send me pictures, but it looks totally different from any of the ones I keep in my collection. Gorgeous. It's got an overall hazy blue to it with like some brownish I, I can't even explain the spider just a cool looking thing so Zach I would say honestly you can't go wrong with any of them I would definitely implore you to try for Mictopus you know I, I always anybody that talks to me if they're they're looking for an intermediate species something that grows fast or whatever and, and it has a good feeding appetite or a feeding response definitely for Mictopus and but you can't go wrong with the other ones but just know with Zenithus you are going to be paying a lot more for it definitely a cool spider can't personally attest to what they bring to the table, but I have spoken to many people who have had them and tried to convince me of them, and they always compare them to Pamphibedius, most likely Pamphibedius, sometimes to Formictopus. So you can't go wrong with any of them. There aren't really... I will say the Pamphos tend to grow a little bit faster than the Formictopus once they hit the five-inch mark. The Formictopus, once they hit around five inches, seem to slow down a great deal, so they put on a lot of size 
the first year you keep them, and then they slow down a bit. Pamphibedias are pretty consistent. They put on a lot of size, but they won't keep up with, say, Theraphosa species. They'll, Theraphosa will lap them. And Zenithus, hopefully somebody can chime in on this. I'm not sure about the growth rate. I'm assuming fairly quickly being a you know large tropical, but I, again, can't personally attest to it. So, Zach, I would say grab one of each. No. Start off, I mean, my personal thing would be start off with a Formictibus. They're hardy as heck or a Pamphibedius, and then work up to Zenithus. There, there's certainly a lot there to like, and if you look at some of the more beautiful species of Zenithus, they're, they're breathtaking. But again, there's that hefty price tag. Next up, we have one from Mark Horsfall. Hey, Mark, how's it going? And again, sorry for the late response to your New Year's um, wishes. I, it, poor Mark left a comment on my Facebook page. I'm terrible at finding things on Facebook. People, I just found a whole bunch of posts on the side that I didn't realize people made. I don't know what my issue is with Facebook. I think sometimes I look at it on my phone and things don't show up, but I keep missing stuff. So I apologize. I don't ignore anybody. Sometimes it just takes me a while to figure out, oh my gosh, where did this come from? Or I'll see a, a message on my phone, plan to find it when I get home and not be able to find it. And lo and behold, it's down the side. Anyway, my apologies, Mark, but do you think communals that quote unquote go wrong in our eyes are just simply natural selection at work. It seems plausible to me that that's what we witness when, for no apparent reason, a communal ends up with just one or two spiders left. That's something I actually pondered, and I think it came out when I was talking about my uh, Neohothello NC communal, which I ended up breaking out because I found what I'm trying to munch on the other one. That is one of, and what got me thinking this is that is one of the species that has been supposedly observed in the wild living communally. And although it's considered to be one of the true communal species, it's one that everybody seems to have a hard time with. So the people that seem to do the best with that species in particular are the ones that take a full sack from a mom, leave it with a mom, and let the slings grow up. And I think the thing is, if you read these accounts carefully, it's not that they're not munching on each other. It's not that there's not cannibalism in it. It's just there are so many to begin with that you don't notice it. They establish their territories. They establish their pecking order. Whatever happens, they they eventually narrow it down to a group of the slings that live, grow up, mature, have babies of their own, and you have a fully functional, quote-unquote, successful communal. However, we've had a lot of people witness ones where you put a bunch of these spiders in a tank together and they start eating each other. And that got me to wondering, why is it that works in in nature, but we have issues with it when we put them together in our homes? And one of the things that I did think about, and again, this is not proven, this is just speculation, and it kind of centered around specifically this species. But it would make sense to me that if these guys are communal in the wild, when they have a bunch of slings, there are always going to be weak slings. There's like any species, there's always going to be the runch, the weak ones. It would make sense to me that if there's not a lot of food around, they would start basically eating each other so that the strongest would survive. It's basic, you know, basic Darwinism. The stronger slings would eventually grow up and prey on the weaker ones, which would basically make sure that only the strongest ones that were ready to take on Mother Nature would survive. It would weed out the weaker ones while giving the stronger ones the substance they need to grow. That makes perfect sense to me. So it seems to me that if you put a bunch of them, say you start off with 200 baby slings. So let's just throw a number out there. I don't think they usually get that high. I think it's usually 100, 150, but 200 baby slings with the mom. It would make sense that a good portion of those would be cannibalized. And then as they put on more size and as the stronger ones emerge, then they start their successful communal. So that is something I've thought about, Mark. I know some people with M. Balfouri. We just did a collaboration video with Alex from Tarantula Haven, great guy, and it put together a fantastic video, and I think it was neat seeing all people's experience with them, which were mostly all positive. But every once in a while, you hear a story about somebody who sets up an M. Balfouri communal and it isn't successful, or they lose one, or we had one instance where a guy told me he started with five and ended up with one very fat sling at the end, 
So although the majority of these work out just great, there are instances where one will get eaten and we immediately brand it as a failed communal. And and I agree, honestly. Like if I had the MBAL, and I got to be completely honest, if I had started my MBAL4 communal and I saw one of them eating another one, I probably would have split them up right then and there. But that begs the question, was the other one sick? Was the other one dying? Do they know something we don't? Is that just how they survive in the wild? If I have a communal... And or if I'm living in a communal environment. I'm a spider. This is, this is getting weird. Let's just say there's a spider living in a communal with a bunch of other spiders. If they have one that's sick or hurt, it makes sense. That's food. The spiders are cannibalistic. That's food. It's not helping the communal any. They're not really – I mean it's not like ants where they, they serve a job. They're kind of just hang out and they grab food as it comes. But it would make sense that they would get rid of that one. They don't need that one spreading its genes. They don't need the, the – you know, weaker genes going out into the population when they start reproducing. So it would make sense to me that they might kill that one. So who's to tell when one doesn't get eaten? It isn't showing signs of weakness. Either, you know, it's not going to molt right or it had a bad molt and that the other spiders don't recognize this and go, all right, you know what, there's a free meal. So Mark, I do think in some instances we don't understand exactly. We don't understand how they socialize. Uh, The other day I was in my tarantula room and I caught the Balfouris out and I've caught this once before on film but one of them tapping another one. And we were trying to figure out what the purpose of this tapping was. Like it was a quick, almost like when they tap when they breed, but she was tapping the other one from the from the back. That sounded terrible, but it was, anybody that's watched the video knows what I'm talking about. Well, I finally caught it again, and I caught it on film. And this time it seemed to me blatantly obvious that two of them had come up upon each other and it was absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, dominance behavior. The bigger one and little one kind of confronted each other. They tangled up, and the bigger one kind of tapped the little one to the point where the little one basically went right underneath it and down a hole. So it gave way. It moved out of the way of the bigger one. And that was huge as far as I'm concerned because that's actual social be That isn't just things tolerating each other. They're communicating. They are using those motions to be like, hey, you know what? You're in my way. I'm in your way. One of us is moving. They do the little tap thing, and the other one's like, oh, you're stronger. I'm out. So that's huge as far as I'm concerned and shows us right then and there that there is a lot we don't understand about these guys. There's been a lot of discussion about a tarantula and spider intelligence, and we just don't know all that much about it. So if we don't know how they think or how much thought they are capable of or what they're intelligent, I know they just did some tests, uh, some experiments on jumping spiders, and one of the things that came out of this, I believe they said they have like – the intelligence, not the emotional intelligence, but the you know regular intelligence of like a two-year-old child. That's pretty impressive. So it isn't far-fetched to think maybe these tarantulas are a little bit brighter. We just look at them as bugs, and it's a possibility they're a little bit smarter than we give them credit for. And again, I don't know, and this I don't want people walking away from this podcast going, going Tom Moran just said on his podcast the tarantulas are brilliant. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we don't understand yet. We We can't really look at them and say definitively they are this smart we don't know so if we don't know about their individual intelligence we definitely don't know about any type of social intelligence or what they do socially that's something that's that's completely up in the air so when you see little things like them interacting like this and i'm hoping to get this video up this weekend it's gonna be a short one but some cool stuff everybody's always excited about the m balfouri stuff we don't understand how these communals work. We don't understand the hierarchy. We don't understand what it takes to make a successful communal in a while. And again, it should be pointed out that there aren't a lot of true, quote unquote, true communal species. The one that I know has been observed in the wild is the NNC. M. Balfouri, there are people out there that will still point out that we haven't seen this behavior in the wild yet. It hasn't been observed and will say they're not true, truly communal until we see that. I have my thoughts on that. I'm not going to bother getting into it now, but it's just irritating. 
But the M Balfour seemed to be the epitome and, and the, the perfect communal tarantula. And I think there's a lot still to be learned on this. And again, Mark, I think, yes, in some instances, if there is a death, we just immediately say it's a failure. There's a possibility that that's just the natural order of things in that communal. I think that needs to be in the back of our minds. Now, do I blame people when they pull them apart when something bad happens? Absolutely not. And we have to remember, this doesn't represent nature. We have them in our homes. They're in different situations, different, you know, they don't have the seasons. They don't have the same temperatures, they don't have the same humidity, the same predators. Everything is different when we keep them together in our home. So it's possible that even just by the way we set them up, we are triggering things to cause them to eat each other or cause them not to get along in that communal environment. If for some, whatever reason, the Mbalfouris seem to adjust beautifully to being kept this way in captivity. We, again, aren't sure if it happens in the wild, but for whatever reason, in captivity, they seem to do overwhelmingly much better than the NNCs. Is there something that's triggering the NNCs when, when people try to keep them communally to attack and eat each other, or is this just natural? I don't know. I do think it's something we need to think about, and I do think with some of the communal species, and I will say with some of the communal species, like the Pisolotheria ones, have been some of the species of Pisolotheria have been observed in the wild, living in close proximity. Like in times of flood, they'll all go up into the trees, and because there's limited area for them, they've gotten used to crowding together and not preying on each other. But that's kind of almost like a ceasefire if for lack of a better term like I don't think they're truly communal like they're not benefiting from this it's more a way of adapting to their environment we don't have enough space so we're going to crowd together and make sure that we don't all die in the process and then I got a funny feeling once things you know the waters go down and they come down there's probably some you know eating of each other in the wild but I, I think we do need to separate the species that truly I think a true communal species is one that there's actually benefit you actually see the spiders doing better. For example, the M. Balfouri, my piece Letharia metallica communal has been doing great, although it still has me nervous. It's just weird seeing all those pokies in there doing well. The growth rate of some of the slings, not all of them, we still got the two little runs in there, but the growth rate of most of the slings in this communal, they're already juveniles almost. It's, it's absurd how quickly they're growing. So there seems to be some benefit with them being kept together. But other species, like they talk about the H. gigas is one that you can raise together. I've yet to see accounts that show a benefit. They will live together, but they don't necessarily prosper. Um, that's something we need to figure out as time goes on. I'm sure more people will try to keep uh, communals, as I think communals are becoming more and more popular, for better or for worse. I think more people are trying to give them shots now because we're seeing there are some great things to be seen if we keep them that way. When I got my M. Balfouri communal started, there was a lot of, there was some good information out there, but still a lot of people are like, no species is truly communal. You're eventually going to end up with one fat sling. And I really wanted to try to disprove or prove that and have people be able to go look at somebody, put them together, tracked the whole thing from day one and this is what ended up happening and what I ended up finding was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in the hobby so Mark long story short I think that's something we have to consider I think it makes sense that in the wild they would eat there would be some preying upon each other some cannibalism where in the wild that would be totally natural the majority would get bigger fatter grow stronger and survive the little ones would be weeded out and that would be normal mother nature isn't going to peek in and go oh god they're eating each other let's split them up it doesn't work that way however in our homes in our you know our little setups we try to get everything perfect and they start eating each other that freaks us out that is the sign of a communal and you know there's 
there's only so many signs you can get from a communal that's not working. Them eating each other is one. And I think a lot of us jump on that and immediately go, this is done. And I did the same thing with mine, and I would probably do it again with other ones. If I see them eating each other, if I catch, I hope it doesn't happen, but if I catch any type of activity like that or cannibalism with my piece of Letheria Metallica communal, they're going apart. I'll have them in 10 separate enclosures. That's totally fine. I'm not going to have them prey on each other. Does that necessarily mean that it was unsuccessful? It's up in the air. I would call it unsuccessful, but there's a very good chance that that would have been a natural occurrence in the wild. And again, Mother Nature doesn't care. And I do think that deaths or cannibalism in any communal setup will continue to be kind of the standard we judge by whether they're successful or not. That's just the way it goes. But not necessarily in the wild, if that makes any sense. So thanks, Mark. That's a great question. And I, I hope as time goes on and people keep more of these, we find out more about them. I know the Balfouris, my guys, I'm waiting to see what happens when they have slings. I'm terrified and also, you know, excited at the same time. So we'll see how it goes. All right, because the last one, unfortunately, ran over and it was an hour. I have to, if I go over a certain three hours a, a month on time on my podcast, I have to cough up some more money, which I will most likely be doing this month, but I don't want to go too far over. So let's do one more question. Richard Stewart asks, do you ever bring any of your teas to school or do you do educational presentations to the public outside of your YouTube channel and podcast? Awesome question. Short answer, no, not yet. And there's a couple of reasons why. A, I'm not a science teacher. It seems to be easier to get tarantulas and stuff into school if you have a science classroom. I'm not a science teacher. I know a lot of people think I probably am because of what I do, but nope. And it's unfortunately, I've been talking about bringing a tarantula in for quite some time, but I had a principal that was highly arachnophobic. I have uh, people I work with that are highly arachnophobic. So I'm waiting for that opportunity to bring one in. It's probably going to happen this year. I have not done any presentations yet, unfortunately, because the way my schedule is right now, there's just really not a lot of time to work it in with the things I'm teaching. It's, it just it hasn't come to fruition. I've started putting together plans for it. I would like to bring some in, obviously. And I think this group of kids I have has been the most interested in what I do. This is the first group that's kind of widely knows about my YouTube page in the past our YouTube channel in the past, a couple of kids have figured it out and found it and be like, Hey mister, you got it. And I'm like, shh, keep it down. But they all seem to know it. And they seem to be very, very interested in it. And that's a big thing for me. One year I went to bring one in and we had kids that were a little rougher around the edges and good group of kids, but just a general disrespect toward animals and whatnot. So we never ended up bringing them in that year. I talked about it, but it didn't end up happening, but it's, it's tough because I want to. And one of my big things I want to do right now is start working eventually on a website putting together some uh, resources for teachers who want to use tarantulas in the classroom. And for me to do that, I really got to start using them in my own classroom. But it's just, it's tricky with what I teach and the, and the students I have trying to get them in a situation where I can actually, because I'm not just going to bring one in and sit it, and sit it there and have it be a classroom pet. I teach and I want kids to know about it. And I do a lot of talking. They know, most of my kids know what I do now. They know about the spider stuff. It always starts off with, ooh, Iggy, how does your wife put up with this? How do you, do you have a whole room with it? Do you sleep with them? Are they all around your house? And then little by little, I answer their questions and they start answering, asking the cool stuff. You know, like, are they poisonous? No, they're venomous. Do they, how do they eat? What do they do? And then they get very interested. So, Long story short, have not brought them into school yet. It's definitely one of my plans. We're talking about creating an X block where my school's at, where teachers could conceivably teach about a topic they're interested in. Obviously, mine would be tarantulas. I think it would be highly successful. It would allow me to really break out some cool stuff and actually teach about these guys and use some of my Tom's Big Spider stuff and put it into action and have an audience because one thing I really miss when I do these instructional videos and do the podcasts, I like playing off of people and I can't get any of that through the podcast. I mean, I can put out 
YouTube, I can put things out on Facebook and ask people to respond, but there's not that banter back and forth. Uh, so moving ahead, yes, I definitely want to do it. As far as going out in the public, we have something brewing where Billy actually went to a local public library, big library, and was she works in pest control, ironically enough, and they were talking about spiders, and she explained how my husband does spiders and teaches about them, and I guess they saw the YouTube channel, they saw the page, and they want me to come in and do a presentation, kind of like a community thing where people come in and see them. And that will probably be where I cut my teeth on this. I think we'll start off with adults or interested parties or kids, whoever shows up to the thing, and go from there. And I really, that I'm really relishing the opportunity. Maybe they'll even let me record. It's one thing I said to Billy is like, if we could do this and we could record it so I could put it up on my thing, that would be huge. So my goal is absolutely to at some point get out and start doing this either in my school or in the public, going to libraries, things like that, and bringing the teaching out and roping more of the general public into tarantula keeping and explaining how it works, having an audience to interact with. But it just hasn't, with my schedule being the way it is, both in school and out of school, and I spend a lot of time when I'm not taking care of my tarantulas, doing the Tom's Big Spider stuff, doing the podcast, doing the videos, answering the questions. There's not a heck of a lot of time right now to do all this. Like my weekends are packed as it is. So it would probably be something I'll do over the summer when it's hot and humid and I'm miserable. But yes, going ahead, I would like to do it. I would eventually... Hopefully, I'm going to start getting some teachers together. We're going to start working on a website for this. That's something I'm hugely passionate about and would like to get going because I do think to get more people in the hobby, we got to start getting the kids interested. They're going to carry this hobby in the future. We start teaching kids that spiders aren't bad. Then they grow up with a more uh, respectful outlook on them. Their kids grow up with a more respectful outlook. That's the way it all starts. Really want to get that going. But at the moment, no, not doing anything. And uh, hopefully, we'll get there pretty soon. All right, unfortunately, I think that'll about do it for this one because the next one I'm eyeing will probably take me a little while. So this will be the end of part two. There will, I don't know if there'll be a part three per se, but do know that the next few podcasts will center on the questions I haven't answered yet. There's a couple there that I really want to take my time on and I took some notes on. So those will probably be like bigger ones with little ones sprinkled in there, but this will be the first two of the smaller questions. I hope I answered them all. If there are any questions after this, so if you ask a question and I didn't quite answer it, because a lot of times I talk and then I play these back later, and I'm like, oh, I should have said this. Please feel free to leave a comment and I'll get back to it. But I do appreciate everybody that took the time to offer questions. I do hope I answered them to your satisfaction. And please continue to ask questions on the Facebook page. That's the most, for me, that's where Facebook actually has value. I'm not a huge Facebook person. As people have probably noticed, I'm not on it a whole heck of a lot, but this allows me a chance to interact with folks for this podcast. So please keep the questions coming. And as always, if you're just finding me the, the podcast for the first time, you're looking for more information, I do have a YouTube channel. You can look up Tom Moran or Tom's Big Spiders. I have my Tom's Big Spiders website which has been going for years and you can find information there especially those of you that are getting in just getting into the hobby i do a lot of husbandry stuff and you know tips and stuff of that nature that will do it for this one and i will catch you all next time